So number one, hire an attorney. And number two, when the attorney gives you their documents, please read them. <laughs> read the documents that you spent $10,000, $15,000 for that's going to tell you and your investors how this is going to work and it is going to keep you out of trouble. Please read them. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, guys. Red Goosens here. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Gene Trombridge. Gene is hugely experienced in the commercial and real estate investing world. As a syndicator, he has sponsored 16 funds concentrating in building and managing self-storage facilities whilst raising money through his SEC brokerage network. He has been a senior instructor for CCIM courses for over 40 years, teaching courses primarily concentrating on investment analysis and decision-making. He is the managing partner of Trombridge Sadotti LLP, a law firm concentrating on syndication and crowdfunding. He and his law partner represent over 325 clients and he have authored security documents for over $1.5 billion worth of equity raised since 2014 in a variety of asset classes with an emphasis on real estate investing. An incredible guy, huge amount of knowledge and experience. We're going to find out a lot more about what he does and what makes him tick, but enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Gene. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? I'm doing fine today, Reed. Thank you. Gene, I always like to ask my guests before we dive into the nuts and bolts of, of what you do and what you're good at, to rewind the clock, take me all the way back to when you've made your first ever dollar as an entrepreneur and, 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 and then we'll talk, get through your story and how you've got into to real estate investing um, uh, after that. Okay. When I was a junior in high school, I talked my father, I was living in Minnesota. Right. And I talked my father into lending me money to go to the hardware store and buy an, it was an L, uh, a Toro uh, multi-pack machine that was a lawnmower and a snowblower. Hmm. Okay. And he did. And I bought it, and uh, the power pack operated both of the equipments, depending upon the time of the year. <laughs> and I went out and made a, uh, a kingly fortune, uh, blowing snow and uh, mowing lawns. That was an entrepreneur uh, activity on my part. Nice. I love, I love hearing entrepreneurs or people who are successful in the business coming from a young age, having that, that drive or that spirit to go out and make, make a dollar. Right. And that's, that's really what, uh, what this show is all about investing here in the United States, but let's dive into your, what you do and, and your background and, and walk us through your, tr um, your journey into real estate investing and how you've really helped people in the security section and, you know, the, ne the newly crowdfunding world that is now consuming the online space. All right, when I was uh, in college, I took courses on uh, finance and accounting and marketing. And when I got out of college, um, I wanted to be a salesman. I really wanted to be a salesman. But back then, if you weren't an engineer, 
you couldn't really sell anything big. You couldn't sell airplanes or computers. So I started selling houses hmm. and found out I was not ideally suited to sell houses. So I took my accounting background and went off to, uh, to learn the commercial side of real estate. And after a while selling commercial real estate to people, I realized that both for their wealth and my wealth accumulation, I should buy some real estate. So that sent me off to the path of being a syndicator. And uh, that path grew into a pretty big business uh, through, as you said in the introduction, through using the, the broker-dealer community to raise uh, money for me. And uh, over maybe a 20-year period of time as a syndicator, uh, read the uh, care and maintenance of limited partners wore me out. <laughs> <laughs> so I had decided that I would uh, shut down the part of my business that was involved in raising money and uh, go into being an asset manager because I had quite a few funds, I had quite a few properties that were, were left. And I thought, well, I'll just uh, do this. And then one day I said to my wife, you know, I said, I can't do this forever. I think I'll go to law school. Wow. So at 45, I graduated from law school <laughs> and, uh, and decided to stay in this profession and mentor and help other people who wanted to be uh, uh, syndicators grow. One of the real issue is, um, issues is if you have enough money to buy all the real estate you want to own yourself, you don't need to be a syndicator. Right. I, okay. So I didn't have enough money. And so I always say that to the audience, you know, if you've got all the money in the world to buy everything you need, don't listen to me. This is a great time to take a coffee break. But if you're, you're going to count on others, other people's money and investing other people's money, then you're going to have to do uh, the, the securities world. I, right. We, everyone keeps talking about the word syndication. That's such a, a silly little word. All it is is, is two or more people doing something together in business. Like you go to the movie and at the beginning of the movie, it says oh, spotlight and um, some other company. Maybe Cinemax or something. Yeah. Right. Well, that's a syndication. Right. So you do all that stuff. And uh, that's all, that's all fine. The real reason, the real issue is, is what you're doing is security. Right. No, that's, and that's, and we're going to dive into that, but I do want to congratulate you for going back to school at 45 years of age and, uh, and, and, you know, changing your, shifting your mindset a little bit and, and getting a new career. That's, that's really incredible. And I think is a good indication of who you are as a person, as a human being, because you, you went out there and had the fortitude to say, you know what, I want to change, I want to change and I want to change. I want to go learn some more and you're, you're, be, be a student and now become a, a successful lawyer. So, so well done. So let's get into the syndication uh, part of it. And, and I know you've written a whole book about it, which I have just sitting here for all those people who are, who are listening uh, on iTunes or on SoundCloud. If you are watching this, uh, Gene's book, uh, on uh, it's a whole new business, the how-to bible for syndicating investments, real estates. It's a cracking book, and we're going to dive into a little bit of it. But Gene, let's start at the beginning. For someone who's never ever heard of what a syndication is, and/or let alone a security, do you want to explain to maybe the listeners in a very short thirty-second to a minute <laughs> pitch of what that is and how it works in terms of growing wealth and, and, and buying more real estate? Sure. 
Once again, a syndication is just a way to combine your money with someone else's money so you could do something you can't do by yourself. But when you take charge of the other person's money, that makes it a security. Right. There are four points to the definition of a security is when you get someone else to invest money in a common enterprise with you and them, they're doing it because they expect a profit. Mm -hmm. But they're leaving all the decisions up to you. Mm -hmm. That's a security. If, in fact, it was an investment of money in a common enterprise for a profit, but you all made the decisions unanimously together, well, that's not a security. So generally it boils down to if you're going to go out and raise money from other people and they're going to count on you to make it happen, you have a security and that's a whole new business. It's a whole another set of uh, laws. Right, right. And so walk us through those laws. And, I, and it's such a, we're going into a world of, it's a big gambit, like syndication security law is massive and it's been around since, I want to say the 1930s, right? Which is when... Right. When, when the regulation D and private placements and all that sort of stuff. And, and for all those people thinking, what the hell is he saying? <laughs> Maybe let's walk through that history a little bit to under of the American way of quote unquote securities in the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, which governs those laws and, and, and implementation of that across the country. Well, after the Great Depression, Congress decided that the public needed protection. Right. The one way they needed protection is when they went to buy an investment were all the material facts laid out for them so they could make an informed decision. And that gets down to disclosure. Right. So the first law really requires disclosure, telling the people what are they going to get before they make an investment. And then the second law was to protect the public from people who were selling fraudulent investments. Mm -hmm. So the first law was material on the investment, and the second law gave the SEC the ability to uh, license and regulate the people who uh, sell securities. So we're still working under those laws today and, and read most of the uh, situations we have will not involve being licensed because right. there is an exception they put into the licensing rule. And it's, it's just like for sale by owner. Mm -hmm. You can sell your own piece of real estate. You don't need a broker. Right. But if you're not a broker, you can't sell my piece of real estate. <laughs> right. so, so in the securities world, if you're going to sell your own securities, you form an LLC, you say, okay, I'm going to raise $2 million, and you go out and raise it. You don't need a license for that because you're a, you're a for sale by owner, but the technical term is you're an issuer right. of your own securities. But that still leaves us the most important rule the uh, full rule on uh, disclosure. And uh, that rule says that every security has to be registered with the SEC unless it's exempt. Now, registering with the SEC is, is you know, Wall Street. Mm -hmm. All those stocks that are there, they're all registered on Wall Street. But uh, there's just, I think in 2017, there was like one6 trillion dollars wow. in private placements wow. private not registered wow people that you know and so that's an awful lot of money and uh, everything has to be registered unless it's exempt you mentioned regulation d 
Well, Regulation D started when the government said, you know, we can't police everything that's being sold. We don't have the time, the money, the energy, the interest. Mm -hmm. There are uh, rich and smart people out there who can make up their own mind. Right. So they came up with an exemption from the rule uh, registering, which was Regulation D. And, and basically it says rich and smart people don't need protection. If you're not dealing with rich and smart people, we'll let you raise money up to a certain number of people and a certain dollar amount, and we'll just take a chance that not everything is going to, have, is going to go to hell. <laughs> I love I love your spin on it. I think that's, that's a fantastic description. But keep going. You, you're on a roll. <laughs> okay. And so that's where we were for a very, very long time um, in Regulation D. Uh, you could not advertise. A private placement meant that uh, you were raising money from people you knew. Mm -hmm. They knew you. You know them. You gave them all the information they needed to make an informed decision. And away we go. Well, in 2012, uh, the biggest change in the securities laws happened with the JOBS Act. Right. And the issue with the JOBS Act was we need to promote capital formation because, you know, the question is, where does that $1.6 trillion go? Small business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And small businesses, what pe businesses that employ less than 500 people, are the backbone of this economy. So if we can promote capital formation, we can promote more small growth. businesses, formation, growth, and more employment. And the only thing they basically said is, hey, let the rich and smart people fend for themselves. We don't protect them anyhow. So <laughs> let's advertise to them. Let's let Gene Trowbridge advertise to rich and smart people, uh, which he couldn't do before. He could only go to his his uh, personal relationships. But we're going to put some rules in there that Gene has to go to somewhere, and, and this is technical, take steps to be reasonably assured that all of his investors are accredited. And so we wrote a law for that. So now we have the old rule, you can raise as much money as you want from as many accredited investors as you want, and 35 sophisticated investors, but don't advertise. Mm -hmm. Or advertise, raise as much as you want from as many accredited investors as you can get and advertise, but don't be fraudulent. Right. We don't care what you say as long as you're not lying. <laughs> we still have the rule of uh, disclosing all the material facts. Right. And, and just for those listeners out there who you've just summarized two rules, 506B for Bravo mm -hmm. and 506C for Charlie. And pretty technical that, there, Reed. Pretty technical. <laughs> pretty technical. But I, I love that you explain it so well because it, 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 the evolution of this, this rules or rules is there's a lot of people who want to become syndicators and they, they oh, I'm going to go out and buy all this real estate and I'm going to raise all this money and it's fantastic and I'm going to so easy to do. You like pump the brakes a little bit. It's, there's a lot of rules involved in it. You have to be surrounded by people like yourself who know exactly what you can and can't do because there are rules. So, um, and that leads us into the, the difference between 506B and 506C. And there's a lot of literature and your book covers a fantastic amount of it. And again, for those people who are, who are watching uh, on YouTube, you can go and download it. And I'll have a link on it on, on the website for Gene's book. Um, but Gene, 
with all those with all those rules, and, and for so many people who do want to become syndicators and have this aspiring aspiration to, to, to go out and make create a lot of money, what what is the biggest advice that you can give for them to make sure that they're not doing anything stupid or not doing anything fraudulent? Well, one advice would be to hire an attorney. <laughs> to hire an attorney. This is not. I'm not saying this self-serving, right. but if you don't have an attorney who practices in the area of syndication, securities laws, how do you know you're doing it right? You right. can imagine since 1933 that the rules are pretty complicated and it's going to take someone who, who studies this. When I went to law school, this was the only thing I was going to do. I can't help anyone with a divorce or a DUI or anything like this because I don't know those rules. Mm -hmm. But I know these rules. So number one, hire an attorney. And number two, when the attorney gives you their documents, please read them. <laughs> read the documents that you spent $10,000, $15,000 for that's going to tell you and your investors how this is going to work and is going to keep you out of trouble. Please read them. Okay. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Please read them. And in terms of those documentations, what is it that you are hiring the attorney to do in order to form the LLC and the, the partnership? Because, right, we've got to, I want to go to my personal investor and say, hey, you want to invest some money in this deal? Here's the documents. What am I handing to them? Or what is the, the lawyer or the attorney producing for me as this indicator? Well, here's how I would do it. If someone came to me, I would do what I call a deal structure interview. And I go through and I find out what the heck are you doing? What's the deal? Tell me about the property. Tell me about all this. And then I will draft the disclosure document, which everyone calls the PPM, mm -hmm. the private placement memorandum, the offering document. It tells the story. And then generally, I send that to my clients first and say, do I have this right? Do I have the story right? And we come back, and I generally don't, but eventually I figure <laughs> it out. And, uh, and now that we have the story right, it's time for me to go out and go to the state and form an LLC. Everyone uses an LLC today. Form an LLC, uh, draft the operating agreement, which really is the rules how are we going to run this thing according to the story? Mm -hmm. That's what the operating agreement does. And then the third document in the overall documents, the offering package, we give the investors is called a subscription agreement and offering questionnaire. Right. People basically make a subscription, make an offer to buy into your deal. And in support of their offer, they um, answer questions. If you're in a 506B, you ask them, are they accredited? And they just check the box. Are you sophisticated? Yes. Well, tell me. What investments have you made? What's your education? How much money do you have? How old are you? All that. So we get to know the people. 506C, it can only be sold to accredited investors. So usually we send the investor off to a third party who does the, the research. Right. and issues a certificate that says the investor is accredited. So the, the full offering package is the story, the PPM, the operating agreement, which are the rules, and then the, the investors offer with supporting information why we should or shouldn't take them. 
Right. And and in terms of you mentioned accredited and non-accredited. So that, can you just define what who who that is and who that applies to? Because people sometimes can get a little bit, oh, I've got a wife and I don't know if I'm this or that. So lay it out so no one's no one's uh, scratching their head. As simple as I can make it, the definition of an accredited investor deals with dollars and cents. If you have net worth in excess of a million dollars, not counting your primary residence, you are accredited. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a single taxpayer and you have a $200,000 gross income, or you're married filing jointly and you have a $300,000 gross income, you're accredited. So it's either or, we're gonna do it net worth mm-hmm. or annual income. Got it. And uh, that's pretty much it. Yep, I, I, I have a lot of people who are like, oh, I only own $150,000, but I'm worth $1.5 million. You're accredited, right? You're accredited, fine. Yeah. And you know what, Reed, what's, what's going on today, and, and, and I'll give you an example. We have a series of offerings from a doctor who syndicates to other doctors. Mm-hmm. And uh, their problem is, no one knows what a medical practice is worth today, given the changes in the healthcare rules. Right, right. So we don't even go net worth. You have to go. As we go to um, income. And I hope I said that, I did say this, that the million dollars doesn't count your primary residence. Yeah, you did I say that. that. Yeah, you did say that. You okay. did cover that. <laughs> So, yeah. so, so, Gene, with with that, in terms of the onus of the 506B or the 506C, you know, the, the traditional 506B, which you can have some accredited and no, unlimited accredited, unlimited accredited and, and a handful of unaccredited. 35. Versus, 35. 35. Versus the 506B, we can have unlimited. The, the onus on both of them, those scenarios, the onus is on the syndicator or the person putting the deal together to make sure they check that that person is what they say they are, correct? Well, in the 506B, it isn't quite that rigorous. In 506B, because you're supposed to know everyone who's investing with you, just check the box, self-certification. Self-certification. In 506C, where you don't know anyone, we have to go through the the reasonable uh, steps to make sure everyone is is accredited. Right, right. And Gene, I've always said to syndicators to say, well, people who want to invest as an LP, a limited partner, they want to place some capital. If a person does not have a PPM or the right documentation, which you just went through, run away. Is that correct? <laughs> run the other direction? Almost. Okay. <laughs> I, would, I would look at the operating agreement, which is the rules. And if the operating agreement says all the decisions have to be unanimous amongst all the members, it's not a security because it doesn't have that fourth prong. Mm-hmm. Uh, the results dependent on the sponsor. So that's what's called a member-managed LLC. It's not a security. You don't need a PPM, but why would you invest in a piece of real estate if you didn't see pictures, maps, demographics, uh, flow charts, uh, pro formas, why would you do that? Right. You know, so I would say if I was going to invest in a member managed LLC to buy a piece of real estate, I'd want the same package of information that I would get 
if I were going to buy it myself. Right. No, that makes complete sense. And it's good advice that people who are listening to this thinking, you know what, I want to get involved with a syndication, but I just don't know where to start. And I guess it's good I guess it's good learning steps to walk through the process in order for them to tick for themselves to tick the boxes. Okay, so got to be a sponsor, got to be, I want to be, you know, credible. I want to see their documentation. I want to see all the, you know, the pitches and performers and rent rolls and all that sort of stuff in order to become confident that you're placing your money with someone who you one you've got to either if it's five or six B you've got to know them, but a five or six C if you don't know them but you're accredited, you want to be confident they know what they're bloody doing. Otherwise, you know, you don't want to lose your money. Right. Uh, right. You asked me earlier what the two mis what mistakes syndicators make, and I said not hire an attorney and not read your documents. What mistakes do investors make? Not reading the documents. <laughs> that, that it's the same deal. They just right. oh, it's a nice picture. It's a, it looks like I'm going to get a forty two percent ROI. I think I'll invest in this guy. Right. Well, ooh, you know. <laughs> Well, you know, I think being a, being a sponsor myself and uh, doing this podcast and doing a lot of other talking like you do, because you're an educator as well, Gene, the biggest thing that I've personally, I found, and please bring your, your two cents to the, to, the, to the light, is that education is so important when it comes to investors. And, and if you're a limited partner, don't walk into something blind. I expect if you know, personally, I'm like, if you don't understand what a IRR is or a cap rate, then maybe real estate isn't for you and you need to go and learn that and come back and in you know, maybe a couple of months time, six months time. You just got to have a basic level. And I think as, as an operator, it's, you know, your, your fiduciary responsibility to make sure that your investors are knowledgeable about what they're doing because that's really important, right? You, might, it, have, you might have found somewhere in the past that you – tried to initially come out with an offering that maybe you tried to get a little cute with how the waterfall goes and throw some mm -hmm. terms in there that not everyone knows. And you know what happens? No one's going to buy it right? because they don't understand it. Right. It's just simple and straightforward, and that'll give you success as a marketer and give you investors who are happy. Yep. So, Gene, with this whole, you know, I've been in the United States for seven years now. In the last half a dozen years, since 2012, just the amount of crowdfunding platforms that have come online, what are your thoughts on where the future is of, particularly in the real estate space, where crowdfunding is going, where the, you know, raising capital for private investors, you said $1.5 trillion has been raised in private placements. How, what, are you, what are your thoughts on where we're headed in the future? Let me give you some background, then I'll answer that question. Sure, sure. Of the $1.6 trillion that was raised in 2017, 95% uh, was raised in Regulation D. 80% mm -hmm. was raised in 506B. Wow. So most money raisers are still counting on the investors they know. Mm -hmm. There's so much money out there and people that they know that have done deals with them before. The movement to 506C in the first five or six years has not been anywhere close to what Congress and the SEC thought. Right. Now, 
on the scene. <laughs> so that's background. But you're asking me, where is it going? I think it's going more toward 506C. In fact, I heard a, an SEC commissioner in the last year say that he thought the largest crowdfunding platform of all would end up to be Facebook. <laughs> and if you do it right, you can put your offering on Facebook. All you have to do is, you know, give them all the documents and make sure you have a third party who's going to uh, verify that your investors are accredited and that works. It's easier to use a crowdfunding platform. It's expensive. But for smaller deals, no one can afford that expense. So smaller deals will start uh, will start coming, I think, on, on 506C. Um, it's really not very difficult to write a 506C offering for a sponsor, and um, I think it works. We, we have probably very, very much the way the figures are, about 80% of our offerings are still 506B, and uh, we've had people who started, you know, my best history is someone raised a million and a half dollars uh, in an offering in 2011, and last year they raised 150 million. Wow. And they're still doing 506Bs. <laughs> wow, that's a lot. That's a no lot. advertising, okay? Wow. So there are a lot of ways. There's a lot in that story, but sure, uh, sure, that's, sure, sure. that's the way that goes. So I think, uh, I think uh, the real estate market, you're going to have to judge for yourself where you think that's going. Yep. I've been in this business for a long time, and when there's blood on the street, there are buyers, right? <laughs> right. Right. And when the market's good, there are buyers. From a, a lawyer's standpoint, I've been doing this now for 25 years. Uh, we've never had it down here. No matter what happens, people are, are still coming up with the money to buy real estate. Wow, that's incredible. And I understand why, you know, this whole world of online, you know, I can be connected with an Uber driver who can take me from point A to point B and the whole idea of, crowdfunding is I can invest in this person's real estate investment. It's always access for the common person to invest small amounts of money. But inherently as a sponsor, I feel like that, and, and sure, as you as a sponsor, real estate's very mano with mano. It's very, I want to touch and feel you as the person. I want to touch and feel, make sure that you're real. I don't think my personal opinion is that, yes, there is a Facebook era coming, but large sums of money, if you can invest $100,000, $200,000 into a deal, I'm not going to be trolling online and find some Google ad about some crowdfunding website to then invest money, that large sum of money. It just, to me, that seems unrealistic in terms of just the, the mano a mano relationship you have with sponsors and real estate in general. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? You're right, Reed. Most of the crowdfunding platforms are raising money in uh, oh, twenty-five dollars to $50,000. Right. Uh, limits, but the the beauty of that is, if you talk to some of those people, and you should interview some of them for your show. Uh, they'll tell you that a typical client has a million dollars to invest, and uh, she comes home at night and kicks off her shoes and has a glass of port and and goes online to see what uh, what's available and puts fifty thousand dollars in a deal. Yeah, yeah. Three well, weeks later, she does it again, and by the end of the year, she's fully diversified in a portfolio of properties with no more than $50,000 in anyone. And it's all being managed for them. That's a right. heck of a deal, I think. 
Right. No, it's, it's, it's a fantastic deal. But I guess for the average investor who doesn't have that win, like still $50,000 is a lot of money, right? Even to someone who only earns $300,000 a year or $200,000 a year, it's just a lot of money to, to, to place. So having, you know, the quote unquote being accredited, I still think it's, my personal opinion, it's, I would like to even meet my investors as well. But I think because I want to know what, you know, it's a two way street, right? Yeah. I want to get involved with, it, it, it takes two to tango. If you're going to invest in my deal, fantastic. But I need to get to know you as well because the fact is, you may be a you may be a pain in my ass to be you know to be honest, and I don't maybe you don't want to I don't want you investing in my deal. So, is there any sort of advice out there for someone who is looking at investing in crowdfunding and or a actual syndicated through a sponsor to make sure that they're uh, doing all the things right? And I know you said read the documentation, but it's very important for that education piece. And I really want to drive that home to the listeners because if you're not educated don't get involved. I guess that's what I'm saying. But what, 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 yeah. Well, first of all, you have to have product knowledge. Don't right. get syndicated in an apartment building if you don't know how to analyze and run an apartment building. Okay, sure. That's, sure. Uh, that's fine. And then I think you have to be educated, just like, like you said. Well, we met uh, a couple uh, weeks ago at some conference, and I was up there just for 45 minutes on the podium just to uh, alert the people, the three or 400 people that were there, Reed, that this is a whole new business. If you're going to do this, it's not just real estate. In fact, yeah. my book was written for real estate people, but it's really not a real estate book. I only use, I only use the term NOI twice in the whole book. <laughs> but I use 506B and 506C an awful lot. So it's right. a securities book. So I think you need to get educated. And I, I know that when I was syndicating, I came through some tough times in the economy. We actually even lost a couple properties in uh, foreclosure uh, because I knew my investors, because they knew me, and um, a lot of communications with the investors. You know, there, there was nothing that we could do. They all had the ability to put more money up to save it, and they all chose not to. We worked as hard as we could without having to do that. And we lost a couple of properties, never got sued. Right. You know, I just told them from day one, I told them what the problem was, not the day of the foreclosure. <laughs> from day one, and we worked all through it, and that's the way it went. Fantastic. So knowing them was good. Good, good stuff, Gene. Well, Gene, I want to also quickly talk a little bit about sometimes how the different structures you you come involved, you come across when you you see different deals, particularly from the uh, limited partnership point of view as an investor. I know there's every deal is different, and I think it's, it's a cheeky way of answering the question. But typically, what are you seeing in from a structure, from an equity split, from return, you know, uh, preferred returns, all that sort of stuff? What are you seeing in your business? Every deal is different, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we do a lot of offerings. We write a lot of offerings. And I would say the most common structure is a straight percentage split with a subordinated position by the sponsor. And let's walk through that. Right. During operations, 80-20. Right. 80 for the investors, 20 for the sponsors, 70-30, something like that. Real easy to understand. And we're talking about the cash that's available to distribute, mm -hmm. not the NOI. Just whatever the sponsor says they can send out, we're going to split it 80-20. Right. And then on uh, refinance, the people should get the return of capital. Mm -hmm. 
and then on a sale, the people should get the return of capital. And then if there's anything less, um, maybe it's a little more aggressive. Maybe it's 70, 30, all the way up to 50, 50, yep. depending upon if it's a repositioning, uh, the sponsor does so much work that on the, the back end, when all the profits are finally made, uh, you can, uh, you can maybe have a little larger split to get more, to get a little more sophisticated than that, I see deals with um, preferred returns. Right, and a preferred return for everyone who's listening out there is just a, a nothing's guaranteed in real estate, but it's the first X percentage of cash flow or whatever it might be goes to the investor. If they don't don't hit that preferred return, it tax onto the year after that and the year after that until you you finally. So it might be a seven percent preferred return, and over five years, that means the first thirty five, you know. 35% is owed to the investors at a bare minimum, right? From any sort That's of- That's right, 7% preferred, and then after they get their preferred, 80-20. Actually, if you put a preferred return in, so the investors know they're getting paid first, yep. you can be more aggressive from the sponsor's take. If I was gonna say a 7% preferred return, I might suggest that in the market, the sponsor could go 60-40. Wow. That's, 60 that's for great. the investors and 40 for the sponsor because the investors are getting paid first. Yep. If investors aren't, aren't getting paid first, it's more like 80, 20. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a, it's a great, great piece of advice. Uh, Gene, I want to be conscious of your time, mate. Uh, at the end of every show, I like to ask my investors to give me their top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? I guess so. Mate, what is the daily habit that you keep on track towards your goals? You're going to find this is this is weird. I read a book many years ago, and it was called um, Free Agent Nation. Mm-hmm. And it was a book about all the people who left the corporate world and now are trying to make it on their own. And one of the issues, one of the things I learned is they all felt that there's no more vertical loyalty in the corporate world your loyalty is built on the teams, your horizontal loyalty on the teams that you work with. So I'm going to give you two things out of that book. I try to make myself work with teams whenever I can for projects. And the second thing I learned, you have to know how to start your day. Mm -hmm. Um, I have uh, the ability sometimes to work in my office at home. Great. But I can't just go downstairs and go to work. I go downstairs, I get dressed for what I need to do in the morning. I get in my car, I go up and I buy a cup of coffee and I buy a newspaper and I come back and I walk into my office and go to work. Wow. I have never figured out the end of the day, leaving the office and saying I'm through working. It's right. too easy to go downstairs and have dinner with my wife and have her say, are you going back to work? And say, yes. I haven't figured out that part. But seriously, working in teams has been crucial to me. And um, uh, having a sense of arrival and know when my day starts. that Because you can, you can fritter away a lot of your time. So oh, that's what I think. Uh, that's a fantastic piece of advice. And I'm very much like yourself. Like, I, I have a, a home office, but I also got an office, a little office where I go to. And I, the reason I did that was because I wanted to be 
more separated mentally. Like if I go to the gym, I'm going to the gym, right? I don't, like when I come home, I want to be able to come home and, or be able to shut the door to the office and mentally check it out because otherwise you just, oh gosh, I've got to get back there. I've got to get back there. So for me, like yourself, I've got to set up those little barriers in order so I can either go to the office or go to a spot, a cafe where I'm going to do some work and be productive in order to get me in the mindset I want to get in because otherwise. And I think clients, if you're going to see clients read, I think you better go to an office. Right, exactly. There are a lot of alternative ways that you can you can do that. But I think a client, especially, I mean, I'm a goddamn lawyer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm wearing a tie, man. Right, I'm supposed right, right. to have some some image, you know, right. and I don't 100%. do so well at it. I don't. Fantastic, do fantastic. <laughs> Mate, what is the uh, most influential tool in your business? So it could be either a piece of software or a hard a hardware, uh, but what is the most influential tool that helps you be successful? Uh, the in, most influential tool is my education, my constant education. I go to classes all the time. Every time I, I'm offered a chance to speak, I'm doing research, what is there new that I can speak about? So my tool is my education, and it works both ways. I believe in education-based marketing. Mm-hmm. So if I'm educating as well as I can, someone's going to say, there's a guy I want to talk to. Exactly. Works. Right. Putting, putting the knowledge first and then letting the business come second. Yeah. I think and that's, that's, that's what you have to do. You have to put the knowledge first and the business will come to you. Exactly. No, I think that's incredibly important. Uh, Gene, what, who has been the most influential person in your career to date? Uh, myself. I'm sorry. I'm just such a self-starter. I've always, you know, I've never been a W-2 employee. I've always been a 1099 or a K-1 person, and I've always been the boss. The one thing I do the worst, and you're probably going to ask me about failure, the one thing I do the worst is uh, um, selecting people to work for me. I'm a very poor judge of character. Hmm. So I find myself alone uh, quite a bit. Um, I suppose there are some people who have motivated me, but gosh darn, you just got to do it, you know. Well, mate, back yourself, love it. I love the fact that you got the confidence to back yourself. And, you know, just just your story of going back to school at 45, not, not everyone would do that, right? Not everyone would say, you know what, I'm going to go do this and back myself. That takes a lot of bone, a lot of backbone, so, so well done. My, my second to last question, what is the biggest value you've had in your, your career today? The biggest failure I had in my career was as a syndicator. I've always said, I've already said to you, I'm a poor judge of people that right. I get to work for me. So that's, that's an ongoing problem. But my biggest failure as a syndicator is thinking I always had to have an offering on the street. If hmm. I wasn't out there selling and raising money, the people who were raising money for me, the broker dealers, might find another Gene Trowbridge and start putting their investors with that Gene Trowbridge, and I'd never get those people back. Wow. So okay. The two mistakes we made that turned into foreclosures were just simply buying properties I probably shouldn't have purchased. Right. I had to have. I had to have something on the street. That's where I generated fees. That's where I kept the people who worked for me paid. That's it. Fantastic. Gene, where can people reach you if they want to learn more about what you do, get more education because you are an education knowledge first type of guy, where can they head to? Okay. Our website is crowdfundinglawyers.net. Crowdfundinglawyers.net. And you can reach me at gene 
at crowdfundinglawyers.net. That's probably the easiest way. I'm very responsive. Emails. You send me an email, I may, if I'm in the office, I'll just pick up the phone and call you. I treat it like a telephone. Right. Fantastic. Well, Gene, thank you so much for dropping by. I just want to quickly summarize some of the great takeaway things that we've learned on today's show. I think the big one is um, from taking away from you, you are a self-starter. So, so I think that's really important as all entrepreneurs investing here in the United States, back yourself and take, you know, going back to university at 45 years of age is, is a huge leap of faith and you did it, you've done it successfully. Uh, but also, the knowledge is first power, you know, making sure you're educated on the process and, you know, the way you get educated is listening to this podcast and also remember for all those listening out there, reading your book, which is extremely, extremely knowledgeable about the business of syndication, particularly in real estate. Uh, but the other thing is also just, just understanding the processes involved and reading the documentation. If you are an investor who wants to get involved in a syndication, make sure you trust this is the sponsor, but also read the goddamn bloody documents because that's what's going to have all the disclosures right. in there. So, mate, did I leave anything out? Was that was that was that everything? No, I think that's uh, that's uh, very good. And uh, Reed, I appreciate it. It's uh, it's great to know you and be part of your world. And uh, I hope uh, this has been a benefit to your listeners. One hundred percent, mate. I really do thank you for, for for dropping by. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll catch up soon. Thank you, Reed. Well, there you have it, guys. Another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible actionable advice and takeaway tips from Gene. Remember, his book is online and it'll be all up on the show notes on my website at readgoosens.com. Remember to click on the podcast tab and reach out to Gene if you have any questions relating to syndication. Guys, thank you so much for dropping by and enjoying the show that what we produce here today. We are all about sharing the knowledge and increasing your financial IQ. We're going to do this all again next week. So take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Thank you.